Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Kraus. We're very happy to be bringing you a whole new set of podcast episodes for this spring semester of 2018. For our first episode, we have an interview with Professor Anna Scope from the Genetics Department of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I got a chance to hear Dr. Scope when she presented at the Sackler Colloquium on the Science of Science Communication that took place at the National Academy of Sciences last fall, and she was just really great and dynamic and talked about the connections between art and science, which is a favorite topic for us on the podcast. And she's on Twitter, so we connected there, and she very graciously agreed to do an interview for us. So we'll post a link to the YouTube video of her National Academy talk, so you can check that out. But in the meantime, here's our interview. Thank you again for joining us for the Sustainable Nano podcast. Really happy to have you here. What do you do? What's your day job? And then how do you think about what you do in terms of what you get paid for versus what you like to do as a hobby. And so I'm a professor of genetics and I balance my time doing research on cell division. And then I also teach an intro to genomics course. And what is genomics for those who have maybe heard of genetics but might not know the difference between that and genomics? Um, it's basically all your gene content in your body and your cell, in a simply put. And we're trying to understand how all that works. So. Humans have about 20,000 genes, but we still don't know how they all work and how they all work together. And so I teach students the current research on how genes are sequenced, uh, a lot of bioinformatics as well. And what is bioinformatics? Bioinformatics is sort of the combining computation with biology. Uh, very simply is, is that we're using computers to try to understand things more simply. And you could mine data, for example, if there's a gene that has to do with collagen, you would get little terms like collagen, extracellular matrix, little terms to tell other scientists what that protein does or gene does and stuff like that. So there's a lot of computational information that's helped a lot of biologists actually understand what genes do in the cell. And um, so I heard you speak at the National Academy of Sciences colloquium on the science of science communication, which was fantastic. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your perspective on science communication and why you're interested in it and that kind of stuff. So part of what I do in my intro to genomics course is I actually combined science communication with genomics. I think it's important as one, we, as scientists, we weren't trained to communicate well. Um, it's not part of the form, certainly my formal education, I think there are more classes doing it. But as you can see, a lot of, lot of the public don't understand what we do. <laughs> so I come to science from an art perspective because my parents were artists. So I have been known to do very good visual communications and I'm a very good speaker. I'm a better speaker than I'm a writer, partly because I'm dyslexic. And so I use the visual also to help me write. So when I write a grant, I actually put a, a keynote talk together and I look at the slides and each slide would be like a few sentences or a paragraph. So for me as a dyslexic, it's helped me to visualize what I want to say. And I think there's a lot of students in the classroom that are that actually have that same issue, just like myself, and I do meet them as they have trouble writing, but they're really creative and have awesome ideas, but they don't know how to communicate it. Not just through writing, we need to, we need to do that verbally, orally, and visually really well. But the visual plays a really important part with public engagement, as I found, you know, so it makes it simpler. People are used to watching TV, and if you look at an ad or you look at the TV and you try to understand why do you like a certain 30-second ad, 
well, it's the layout and the visual. There's art to that, right? So in science, is the same thing. And so being a genetically an artist, this was very clear to me that I have a skill that I can impart on others and especially teach them, but as well as I realized that I have a real passion for and skill to interface with the public. I also have a very easy science. I work on how cells divide. Everyone knows what that is, and they can visualize it, and it's easy. It's not really esoteric, and so I started talking to a lot of student groups, and then I've become better at communicating through those interactions with different groups, um, but using the visual for that. If you show these images without a lot of text, people are like, wow, that's amazing. So you allow the student to experience it with you. And then you can describe what it is. You know, you can catch people with something beautiful, just like an ad on TV or some kind of show like, oh, that's really cool, right? I mean, I'm a fan of Project One Way, for example. So you don't have to understand how to sew to appreciate what's going on there, right? And so that's the beauty of the show is that people are competing against their creativity, but it also on their skill level. And that's exactly what science is about. Exactly like Project Runway. You have an idea you want to put together and you experiment and you sew and you put different things together, just like in a laboratory. So, and that's why that, that's why that show is very popular for that reason, because that's exactly what every business is like that, whether you're scientists or artists, you're coming up with a problem like you want to have this thing for summertime and we want to it's going to be inspired by uh, beetles or something and, you know it's, it, it's some kind of there's a problem and we want to solve it people are creative problem solvers but we often don't know how to communicate it but different fields are better at that certainly so science is particularly bad because people just type stuff up on a slide and it's not engaging at all but watching an awesome dress that looks like a bug walks I mean, it's awesome. You know, I've always been cognizant of that, partly also because my brothers and sisters, my entire family work in marketing and design. And they're the people who understand how to engage with the public with a product, for example. You know, so I'm like, well, I have a product, I have my science, so how do I, you know, do that? So we, we talk about that a lot, but I don't know. I think that's where a lot of that started is for, for me as a scientist, the visual communication is important for me to actually get my writing done, but also to be able to engage the public. The visual plays a huge part in that. And we don't train the students to do that at all. It's not part of their thing. I mean, people come to a liberal arts college and take art classes, but the, they don't join them together to realize that they're there. The goal here is to try to be able to have all sciences to have that knowledge. And I think a lot more students will be interested in the sciences if they realize, and their creative types are like, well, I like art and science, but I have to choose, right? You don't have to choose because in every business, there's a creative, you know, there's a problem to solve, but you do it, you know, creatively. <laughs> this is making me want to ask so many different questions. Um, okay, to start with, so your whole family is artists. You have a passion for visual art. How did you end up becoming a geneticist? So I started in, I'd have to say, in grade school, I was always playing around with stuff. My dad and mom were always interested in science. So there was always a lot of like Nova and stuff. Back then, we only had a TV with three channels, right? So you, and it was a knob. So my, we had an art studio at our house. So we were, I was always experimenting and playing around. And my parents liked science and I'd bring in garter snakes from the garden and then you know my teacher would say you know we would have little science experiments even third grade I would go out and I would have do experiments with salt and sugar in my yard 
I would pour mountains of salt and sugar and see which ants would eat the salt and sugar. And of course, the, the ants ate the, the sugar faster. But my parents allowed me to do that, that they were okay for me to have these little weird like outside experiments happening. But then when I got to maybe middle school, that's when you started having science fairs. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And my parents were so into it too. We had a, you know, we had a big art studio and all this woodworking. My dad knew how to do everything. So he's like, oh, what do you want to do? And, and so they would get totally into it. And they go, we, we don't really know about science, but here's the library. And they, my dad took me to the library. He said, there's a library in here and there's these science journals. She'll help you. You go read them. And I was very young and my dad would give me bus money. So I lived in Northern Kentucky across the river from Cincinnati. So it was like maybe... It's not even 10 miles from downtown. So my parents would give my sister and I money for food, lunch money, and bus ride home. They would drop us off. And that also gave us a sense of freedom and experimenting. We had to figure out how to get home. They came with us once, but we, do, we did it so often that we went to another city into the library and studied a lot. And I started reading journals at a young age and getting really excited, partly because I had to do these science fairs. And so I started putting together things and I, I started winning all these science fairs. They just got more and more complex. So there were different things going on. So we learned about plant biology. I said, well, I, want, I like this thing called hydroponics. Let's try it. My dad was a big gardener. So we built out of plastic a hydroponic box to do control and experimental stuff. And then I, I learned about symbiosis. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so I went to the journal and I was reading about what plants and other organisms feed off each other. And so I came up with the idea of putting algae in the water because I realized the algae had more CO2. It, it was very simple. I asked my teacher, can I get some algae? Where do you get this? And he ordered for me and I grew two different plants, one with algae and one without. And sure enough, the plants with the algae, it was called chlorella. I remember the chlorella algae. The plants with the chlorella in it was way better growth in the roots, and it was a much bigger plant. And I just, I didn't think anything of it. And neither did my, my dad's like, oh, that's sort of cool. But I took it to my science fair, and it was a plant biologist from a university. He's like, where did you come up with this idea? I said, well, I learned about symbiosis, and my dad's a gardener. So I just put it together. So that idea of like just taking something you learn and adding it, and which is science. And I went all the way to the state science fair with that thing. That's so great. And I know now that actually people do put algae in water for hydroponics. So that gave me confidence. So I really am a big proponent of the science fair. And I realized that as you go through school, doing one every year, doing different kinds of science will get kids engaged in different ways. You know, I think for me, as there were all those different experiments, was like, I think I can do this, right? But then I got to college, and I mean, I think the most fortunate thing for me, I grew up in a poor household that I had to do work study. And so that, to me, being poor was actually a gift. And then my dad says, well, you're going to have to work to pay for your rent and all that kind of stuff and your food. And so he says, but I know you like science. So he took me to the biology labs that week that they dropped me off. And they said, my daughter needs a job. She has work study. And that was my first job. So I took, two, you know, two jobs in a C. elegans lab, which I work on now today. And another one in a lab that worked on blood cells. 
I didn't like the blood cells because I was cleaning the, <laughs> the tubes full of blood, but I really liked the C. elegans lab. I learned a lot there, but I was getting paid to learn. And that to me, I think the federal work study program is like the greatest thing that has ever been invented. But because for kids like me, I would have never been able to get in the door that early when I was a, you know, freshman into a laboratory, you know, and I think for a lot of kids, it is their, it's, it's a gateway drug into science, I feel like. And so I really try to do that on campuses to try to get those kids who are poor like me, work study students to get into labs really early. Yeah, so that's sort of how I got into it. Getting into genetics, I think, I think my favorite course as an undergrad was developmental biology, partly because it's visual. So I saw embryos of all different species in the class, and I would draw them. I remember I would copy my notes. I still have my notes. It's like all of the drawings of Drosophila embryos and C. elegans. I was like, I loved it. I was like, oh, I think I like all these processes moving around where you could see it. You could actually see the organism. Once I got to grad school, I realized that I really like C. elegans, and I ended up really liking the C. elegans embryo. I had it in my textbook. I circled the early embryo in my development, and I said, I love this, and I want to work on it. I didn't know what it was, and it turned out to be my mentor's first confocal image of the embryo. And so that was just fortuitous of the visualization of, you know, what's happening in the cell was really what caught my eye. Yeah. Talk just briefly about what C. elegans is. and So C. elegans is a little nematode. It's about a millimeter long, size of a pinhead. Can't really see it. You could sort of see it with your eye in the, on the laboratory plate, but it, it grows in the soil. And it is found near rotting fruits, so it's called a rotting fruit nematode now. People have discovered this. Um, they didn't know that before. They thought it was just in the soil, but it's near uh, in rotting fruits, and all these different species are in different fruits, for example. But the worm crawls around and aerates the soil and creating good environments for plants and stuff. It's also hermaphrodite, so it has eggs and sperm, and so it can live on its own perfectly fine and produce hundreds of eggs. It's the very first animal that the genome was sequenced. So it has very similar genes to humans, and so we can now study most genes that are in humans that you can find in C. elegans, and you can use it. Of course, we can't work on humans, so we, C. elegans is a great model for that especially early development and especially neurobiology. So that's why people study it. But it's just simply a very transparent little organism in the soil that no one really cares about. You'd walk by and not even know. But it's terribly beautiful and transparent and everyone loves it. So, and has a short, I think it's a short lifespan makes it really useful. So it only lives for two weeks, but it produces so many children, it keeps propagating itself. Yeah, that's great. So you've talked a little bit about the experience of being dyslexic, and I wonder if, if you're comfortable talking a little more. You know, I know this is sort of considered a quote-unquote disability uh, yeah. in the sort of standard education system or whatever, but it sounds to me like you're a perfect example of how that's really just about the social expectations, because for you, from the way you describe it, it sounds like a, it's been an advantage, or it's been, you've used it. I think it's a gift. And I, I mean, Einstein was dyslexic. They even have said Da Vinci was dyslexic. I think for me, as I realized that these kids were always there, and I was always there, but because the way science was taught, for example, it was exclusionary to someone like me with this disability, which it was. I, I didn't do well on GREs at all. I standardized tests were very difficult. I still struggle with reading papers. I struggle with writing. I can't. It's not my forte, like I said. And so I have to visualize things to do my work. But, you know, I was taught from different mentors of how to get around it. But I learned the visualization my own way. I had another mentor 
Um, my postdoc mentor, Barbara Meyer, said to me, why don't you talk into a recorder because you're a really good speaker? You know, doctors do that because they don't have enough time. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I got a recorder and I started doing that and transcribing what I was saying onto the paper. And when I'm struggling, I do that. I just sort of talk into, you know, my phone now and I play it back. I go, oh, that's what I want to say. Another thing that I do, how do you write a paragraph, a scientific paper, right? So one thing I do that I learned from, from artists also is a lot of people have taken art classes where you copy the masters, right? You're going to copy a Monet or a, a Van Gogh or something. Like learn the style. Yeah, learn the style by doing that. So what I found is take a paragraph, a science paragraph that you think is very well written, and you, it's like a Mad Libs. You remove their words, but you put in what you want to say there in replacement. And then you stand back and you look at it. And you go, oh, that's exactly what I want to say. So it's like learning from the masters. That's a way to sort of understand sentence flow when you're a dyslexic. Because I struggle with that a lot. I was like, I don't know what to say. If I had someone else write when I talked, I'd probably have a lot more grants. Uh, you know, like I just feel like... It's not something I like to do because it's hard for me. I think if I if I could talk for an hour and then they would decide whether they give me money, I'd probably have millions and millions of dollars. So for, I think, dyslexics like us, I think a lot of people are probably turned away by science for that reason. But, I mean, fortunately now you, there's all these programs. People are drawing these amazing figures and visualizing their data within there. In the older days, that certainly was harder to do. But yeah, I see students like that all the time that don't feel confident as a scientist because they struggle with that. And I like to tell students right off the bat, I'm dyslexic and I'm here. I fail and I also failed. I failed my prelim twice. I did lots of failures in life, but I was able to be on the bench doing my kinesthetic and active learning in the lab and I was really good at it. You know, so it didn't match my lab work, didn't match my classwork. And my mentor saw that as a grad student. And so, you know, he's like, he said, I have golden hands. But he's like, everything you touch works. Every idea that you come up with, it ends up working. It's crazy, but it works. It's the grant private process is just sort of, a, it's a hurdle. But, you know, I think as a dyslexic, you can get over it with ways of doing it like I do with visualizing my you know, I, my grants are all visualized, you know, in a talk. And I give a lot of talks, and then I can always think, oh, that's good, maybe I should change that and, you know, put that in a... And it helps me go back to the computer and start writing again. So it energizes me. So speaking of grants, could you tell the story then of how you decided to start a food blog? Oh, okay. So I started a, a food blog. So I started my faculty position when, in 2004, and... I started writing grants, and of course, you know, I got one, but then you, you write grants, and you don't get them, you don't get them, and it's depressing. It's very depressing. And so then I, I thought, wow, I'm a really good cook and a baker and stuff like that. And I started reading blogs, and I one of my favorite blogs that I started following early was Smitten Kitchen. And she started the blog, and I was looking at the blog. It was super simple. And, you know, there's ad revenue on pages, which a lot of people didn't know at that time. And she had wrote that she was making $5,000 a month. So I, you know, I got my calculator out as I was like, hmm, let me see. That's more than my grant, you know, like that would cover all my supplies in a couple months. And then I saw that she quit her job and was doing that professionally. You know, so I was like writing grants and then I was like, but I like to cook and share. My family's everywhere. 
So I was like, well, maybe I can write a blog and then write a cookbook. And maybe that could pay for my lab. And that's still my passion and my pipe dream. So my blog is out there. Eventually I'll write a cookbook. But the goal was to not have to go through this crazy system of applying to federal agencies for doing it. And I could fund my lab. And it would just be easier. Or I can open up a bakery across the street in a building. And I can sell a cupcake for $4. And they're really good. And everyone would sell out. And every day I would be able to fund months of research. And so that's sort of how my food blog came about. It's hard to keep up all the time, but I go through spurts here and there. I have a lot of recipes, and I think now with social media, I have Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and I post a lot of my food stuff. I don't put the recipes on my Instagram page, but at least I document everything that tastes good or what I make and stuff. And it's food scope, right? Yeah, food scope. Is there a particular theme for the the recipes, or is it just what you happen to be working on? Well, the way I bake and cook is I sort of do what Tyler Florence does. He does the best recipe. So as a scientist, I do the same thing. If I say, okay, I want to make mapo tofu, which is one of my favorite Szechuan dishes. I find everyone who makes mapo tofu and I look at all the recipes and I read the ingredients and I can tell you if it's going to taste good. But then I pick little techniques from each one and I create my own protocol as a scientist and I go this is going to taste good based on this information a b and c and that's how I do science the same way I look at how everyone does it and then I create the best of some people do a really good job or I swap in you know I started putting espresso in my chocolate cakes espresso powder makes chocolate taste richer when you know what the the different components do and then you could start to add the little things there that's great. Yeah, we'll totally link to the to the food blog and to Twitter and stuff on our show notes. But um, what are you excited about working on in the lab at the moment? My lab has discovered that there are actually RNAs in the in the little pinch point of of the cell in this structure called the midbody that I study. Like when it's dividing, is that when it's dividing? There's actually RNAs and RNA binding proteins that are there that maybe target them there. So we're trying to figure out how RNAs are regulated during mitosis. So in textbooks, people will tell you that the process of translation, of taking that RNA information and making a protein, doesn't occur in mitosis. And we think it actually does occur in mitosis at particular times in mitosis. So there might be in metaphase, but also at the final pinch point. But it, it's sort of changing the way people's thought processes about how RNAs are regulated during mitosis, which people don't think they actually, they're, they're held in an inhibited state in mitosis. But I don't think that's actually true. So is there a way for, for non-biologists, is there a way to explain why we care about this? Other than that it's, it's changing, you know, the way we understand, the way scientists understood how this works. But for the general public, how do you talk about why this is important? So the bare basics here, cells, when they fail to divide, you get cancer or birth defects, for example. So some of the genes that we know bind RNA actually cause cell division defects and they cause birth defects, so that's interesting. The other interesting piece of the information is RNA regulation in neurons is really important. And also some of these cell division genes actually cause neurodegenerative diseases. And there's actually cells in the brain that divide, which are called glial cells. And when they fail to divide, you get gliomas, so you get brain cancers. So we work on this gene called a taxin-2, 
When you mutate it in humans, it causes ataxia, which is shaking. This is Parkinson's and ALS. So it has a cell division defect, strangely. So we think it's possible that the glial cells in those patients are failing to divide as you age. And that's maybe why you have this neurodegenerative issues as you age, because now cell division is not occurring properly. But that's, you know, unbeknownst to anyone at this point. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I think most people assume that like, oh, neurons, once once the brain cells are there in an adult, they just they just hang out. It's true. They do. It's the other cells that hold them up. Glial cells are constantly dividing to hold those neurons in the right place. Cool. Very exciting. So that's that covers the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you are excited about working on at the moment or, you know, art projects that you have ongoing? Or... Yeah, so one thing I'm doing, I just got my NSF Broader Impacts funded a $50,000 art installations that I'm doing. Congratulations. And so we're doing something called Genetic Reflections down in the Biotech Center here that will be installed first here and then travel the country. That pays for an artist and I to work in the lab together to build this 40-foot installation. And the goal is to have a piece where students and parents and kids can come in and they see, they could see themselves in the piece. So it's sort of like a mirrored piece, but they also see what's inside of their cells. So that's sort of what we're working on. And so we're actually experimenting how to do that. But we also wanna show people what DNA sequencing is so having DNA code and having model organisms, the importance of model organisms in understanding your biology. But the thing will be interactive. So if you look in the mirror in the morning, basically it will look like a mirror, but there'll be DNA in there. And so it makes it's going to have a bit of curiosity, but it's going to be a very huge thing. So I'm super excited about that. That'll probably open late April, early May to have the show open, and then it will travel after that for the next year. And so it'll be in, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison? Yeah, in the Biotech Center. Very cool. And then the other thing we're doing, I'm, I sit on the board of the Wisconsin Science Museum. And so I'm going to start to do this quarterly, but we're going to do Paint Your Microbes Night. We're trying to get people interested in science through the arts. We're going to do, you know, those paint bars that you can go and paint and there's a bar there. So I'm going to have myself and another scientist who also does art. We're going to host the event and teach people about microbes and have them paint it. And the public is going to be there to submit their masterpiece for our competition at the museum and so that's sort of another little project that I'm trying to work to engage so I'm always trying to think of fun things that I can get the public to engage with you know it doesn't have to necessarily be my work but it's like how do we get them engaged using art to get them in science and then get them to the museum and to see what discoveries have been made at, uh, at the university in the state of Wisconsin and so I'm really passionate about doing that. Yeah, that's wonderful. And in some ways it goes without saying, but I'll ask you to say it anyway. So why do you think it's so important to get the general public to kind of get engaged and get excited about science? There's a lot of great ideas out there that go unfunded because there's lack of funding. And I remember when I was in grad school, and that was during the Clinton administration, there seemed, and I felt like there was a lot of people coming up with a lot of creative ideas and they were being funded. And I never felt like there wasn't money to do stuff back then. And I felt that it was a very excited time to go to grad school. Nowadays, people are very turned off. My own grad students are turned off to science because there's no money for them to continue and do stuff. And what happens is we're losing this diversity of thought out there. You know, we want these people to solve the world's biggest problems and we're losing, we're hemorrhaging them. So if we don't tell people what we're doing now with their money, 
we're going to have a whole, you know, system of people we've lost to science and it's not, and the advancement of science is not going to be there. So, and I think we don't do that job very well as scientists. We need to get out there more. And, and so I feel really passionate about making sure that we get out there and talk and engage with the public so they understand that the vaccines or the, the medication or, or the, you know, the NyQuil that you take is one, okay, it's not going to poison you, or your eggs in the morning are, are don't have bacteria on them. You know, little things like that, that you don't know where science fits in in your life, but it does every single day. And we depend on scientists for that. So I think the more of us that get out there and do that for scientists, because it's, it's part of everyday life. Well, I think that's a great, it brings us right back around to the, you know, the importance of science communication. And, and here we are doing this podcast. So we're hoping that, that this will get people excited about the work that you're doing and the connection between science and art and, and cooking. So really appreciate, again, that you, you took the time to talk to us. And hopefully, you know, maybe we can do a all baking show sometime in the future. <laughs> sure. No problem. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, thanks again. And I uh, hope you have a great weekend. All right. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to Dr. Scope for doing the interview with me. And thanks, as always, to the National Science Foundation, which provides funding for the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, the producer of this podcast. We offer our usual disclaimer, though, that the opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. What did you think of this episode? We'd love to hear from you. We are on Twitter and Facebook at Sustainable Nano, all one word. If you want more content, we have a blog at sustainable-nano.com, and all of our previous podcast episodes are at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We've got more great episodes planned for you this spring, including interviews with graduate students who've recently published papers for the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, and a discussion with Alvin Chang, who's a writer for Vox.com, about his article on upward mobility and class in higher education. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening, and our next episode will be coming in just a couple of weeks. 